Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. We're going to talk about a topic that I've been meaning to deal with for a long time, tax residency for New Yorkers. I get about three calls a week from people trying to arrange their affairs to reduce their state and city tax burden and thinking about relocation. So we're going to talk to one of the top experts in the field, Mark Klein of Hodgson Russ, and he's going to help us dispel some misconceptions. Mark is a partner and chairman of the firm and concentrates his practice in New York State and New York City tax matters. He has more than 35 years of experience with federal, multi-state, state, and local taxation, and he may be best known for his public speaking on tax topics. Mark splits his time between the firm's New York City and Buffalo offices. For you New Yorkers who are listening, you're going to learn a lot about how to arrange your affairs for state tax purposes and a lot about what to think about when relocating to places like Florida. Mark, welcome aboard. Thanks, Treasure. Glad to be here. If you're a New York State resident, New York City resident, you are in a difficult tax situation. I get probably three calls a week from people who live within the state and within the city, and they complain about their tax burden. Maybe frame for us for a second what that looks like. What is the tax burden that New York residents face? And then maybe contrast that with some of the places that people live that have no state income tax or no city income tax. Sure. As a result of this year's legislative initiatives in New York, New York now has the distinction of having the highest joint tax rate joint between New York State and New York City in the country. California used to be ahead of us, but now New York is number one. And basically, New York's highest tax rate can max out the state itself at 10.9%. And on top of that, you add another practically 4% at the city. So you're talking, like I say, around 15%. And of course, Unlike the old days, it's not deductible at all. So it's 15% right off the top. And that is a significant tax burden. And when you compare it to a place like Washington State or Texas or Florida or I think Wyoming, where they have no income tax, there's quite a disparity. And I think one of the other issues, Frazier, is that New York State also has a significant estate tax. So once you pass away, you're looking at an estate tax in New York that can hit 16% pretty quickly. Most states, especially other than those in the Northeast, most states don't have an estate tax. Florida has no estate tax. So when you're looking at relocating, if taxes are a concern, the amount of income tax that you'll save and then ultimately your beneficiaries when you have an estate tax, it can be really significant. It it adds up very quickly. So, and on to that too, capital gains tax is a major issue as well. So if you have low basis positions, that's something to avoid as well. Yeah. I mean, the problem with New York is that we don't have anything called capital gains. All income is taxed the same. So if you have a great capital gain for federal purposes, you'll generally max out around 20% or so. But then on top of that, New York wants its 15%. Because we don't distinguish between ordinary income, capital gains, short-term capital, doesn't matter to us. Everything is taxable at the regular rates. I get the calls from people who say, oh, well, I can move, and if I spend more than 180 days out of New York, I'm in the clear. I think you and I both know that there is a lot more nuance and art and science that goes on in relocating and dealing with the cottage industry around how to get your fact pattern in place 
so that you survive an audit from New York, who as a state and a city, they are constantly looking for tax dollars. What are the typical options for people who are thinking about relocating? And what are the things that you're telling your clients about in order to get that fact pattern right when they make the move? Sure. And I think you you hit the nail on the head. Most people get their legal advice with respect to changing their residence from their friend on the golf course or the guy down the street who says, oh, so-and-so did it. And, you know, again, as you said, 183 plus one days. And unfortunately, that isn't the case at all. I mean, there is a rule that says if you're in a state like New York more than 183 days, and if you keep a house here, then you instantly lose. But simply being in less than 183 doesn't mean you instantly win. In fact, far from it. The rules basically say a couple of things. The first thing that they say is in order for you to prove your case, because again, taxpayers are always guilty till they prove themselves innocent. So the first thing that you've got to do is leave New York. And we can talk about what that means. And just as importantly, you have to land in a new location with the intention of remaining there. And one of the greatest frustrations I have lately, Frazier, is talking to people who've left New York City, for example, during COVID. March 13th actually was the last day that I was in my apartment in the city for the rest of the year. And a lot of people left for the Hamptons or for Florida for here or there. And they are insisting that once they left New York City, they can't possibly owe another penny of New York City tax. Even if they're in the Hamptons, obviously that's New York State. And I have, unfortunately, the awkward position of having to tell them, look, you left New York City. You got half the equation perfect. Did you really land in the Hamptons? And by that, I mean, can you prove that you landed there and that you intend to stay there indefinitely? And one of the things auditors look at is, well, you changed your domicile to the Hamptons. What did you do? Oh, I got a beautiful home out there. Well, you've had that for a decade. That didn't make you a resident of Suffolk County. Did you do the things people do when they change their residence? So, for example, did you move your stuff? Because I think, Frazier, one of the things people fail to recognize is that when you're audited, and you are correct, New York is very aggressive with its audits because if you think about it, who are they auditing? The very people who, by definition, no longer pay taxes here. They, I'm sorry, they don't vote here. They don't want to pay taxes here, but more importantly, they don't vote here. They have no political constituency. So when an auditor is looking at somebody who purports to have moved, the auditor thinks to themselves, okay, what does it mean to move? Well, the auditor says, when I move, I generally will sell my house up north I will put everything in a big truck. The truck will move down south. It will unpack in my new home. And now I have become a Floridian. And look, if you do that, it's a very short audit. You will win. But the problem is some of our clients that have substantial means don't want to get rid of their New York place because Florida, as fun as it might be, is not as much fun in the summer during hurricanes, et cetera. So they want to keep a place back north. So already there's this disconnect with the auditor. Gee, you say you left New York, but you kept a place. That's okay. Quite frankly, I do probably 200 audits a year, and I think approximately none of my clients get rid of their place in New York. Because if you do get rid of your place in New York, it becomes pretty easy. You don't need any help in that one. So they keep their place in New York. And so the next question the auditor will ask is, okay, when did you move all your stuff down? Well, my clients say, look, you don't know me, but I have the financial wherewithal to be able to afford a TV in New York, and I can even afford a TV in Florida. Maybe not both high def, but I've got so much cash, I can afford two TVs. And so I don't need to move anything. Plus, you know, I've been down in Florida for 10 years. We've acquired what we need to acquire is a different kind of motif, a different kind of way of interior decorating down there. Plus, as I told you, I'm going to keep the house in New York because I want to come back in the summer and I would prefer to have a bed and a, a nightstand, et cetera. And that sometimes frustrates auditors because they're like, 
you say you moved to Florida, but you didn't move anything. What does that mean? So that becomes an issue for them. And I think at the end of the day, the real problem is the way the law works. The law says that you need to prove, since taxpayers are always guilty till they prove themselves innocent, you need to prove by, quote, clear and convincing evidence that you moved to Florida. Now, clear and convincing is this legal thing. It means more than preponderance. It's, again, a legal term. And what does it mean, clear and convincing? Well, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know what it doesn't mean. And if you tell me you're spending 180 days in Florida and 180 days in New York and you travel a week here or there, that's not clear and convincing. That's 50-50. And 50-50 is anything but clear and convincing. And quite frankly, there are a lot of, we call them mediators. There's a group of people. If you have an audit, you deal with the auditor. If you don't like the result, you go to the supervisor. And if you don't like the result, you can go to something called the Bureau of Conciliation and mediation services. We call it BCMS. And those mediators or conciliation conferees, as they also like to be called, will listen to your case and try to identify if you've really moved to wherever. And I know a number of conferees who tell me, look, there's lots of interesting factors we can look at, but if your client was in New York more than 150, 160 days a year, I can't see how they'll ever win. Because that, by definition, since there's only 365 days in a year, isn't clear and convincing. And I think the other issue that we find is that people, again, they hear about this 180-day test. So they're in Florida and they put in their time in Florida and they're only in New York, you know, five months a year. And they think to themselves, I'm only in New York five months and I'm going to travel. I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to go to California. I'm going to go here and there. And I'll spend the rest of my time in Florida. So wait a second. Now you're saying you spent five months in New York, and by math, only four months in Florida, yet you're somehow a Floridian? It doesn't work that way. And what a lot of people fail to realize is that when you go to Europe, you go to California, you go here and there, it doesn't hurt you, but it doesn't help you. Because again, the process of identifying where you reside is twofold. Did you leave New York? Absolutely. Did you land in Florida? Did you show that you stuck the landing? In fact, I've had cases where people are only in New York four months a year. Then they spend four months in Vermont and four months in Florida. And again, New York says, clearly you left. You're not in New York eight months a year. We get it. But again, you're in Florida just as much as you're in New York. Why? What makes you a Floridian? It's not clear and convincing. And I think one of the other things that frustrates people is, again, because they're getting their legal advice on the golf course, is that they believe that to become a Floridian, A, the 180-day test, which doesn't exist, and B, you get an affidavit of domicile, you register to vote, you get a homestead exemption, you change your driver's license, your vehicle registration, and then voila, you're a Floridian. And what auditors say is, look, that's not really that relevant. That's called paperwork. And if you do all that stuff, it's really nice, but all it really means is you're good at paperwork. I mean, look, Frazier, I'm in New York right now. If I went to Florida tomorrow and filled out all those pieces of paper, then came back home the next day, somehow it makes me a Floridian? No. So what New York looks at are things that you might not think of. I mean, I'll give you a quick example, and then I'll actually do something that lawyers hate to do. I'll actually let you ask a question again. <laughs> um, <laughs> not a problem. This is good stuff. So one of the questions that auditors ask is sort of interesting. So you're down in Florida, and, and look, God forbid you or your spouse or your children are ill. I don't think anyone would begrudge you coming back north to deal with some of the best medical care the world has to give. Look, Florida might be great, but you know, I'm biased. I think New York's got phenomenal medical professionals. And that's okay, believe it or not. But what isn't okay is thinking about somebody who would travel 1,500 miles out of their way to get their teeth cleaned. That's crazy. Where do you do that? You do that at home. 
You talk about the sticking the landing part, and I know it's come up for a lot of people where they get disgruntled about having to leave their churches or synagogues and their clubs. And again, what you're talking about is you're trying to create a fact pattern with lots of indicia of moving out and landing somewhere. For the client who is thinking a year or two ahead, what can you do to sort of bolster that fact pattern? Are there things that you can file, the domicile filing, et cetera? Does it make sense to have a tax return on file at the new state? What do you do to try to help bolster the fact pattern a year ahead of time so that you're sort of preempting the audit to the extent that you can? It's funny you say that. We actually have people who work for us as paralegals who used to be residency auditors. And for a number of our clients, we do prophylactic audits. We actually put them through the audit ringer because it's better to find out your issues and problems now than it will be three years from now when the real auditor comes knocking at the door. But I think the question is, you need to prepare a plan, but you don't want to execute on it until you're prepared to go to Florida. They do fill out all the paperwork. They start spending a lot of time there. And then two, three, four years later, they say, okay, we're going to pull the trigger. We're now Floridians. And we're telling the state of New York, we've changed our domicile. That's an important verb, change. And the auditor says, great, you're now a Floridian. What changed? Well, I've got a beautiful place in Delray. Well, actually, you've had that for five years. That didn't make you a Floridian. What you said you changed this year. What changed? Well, I filled out the paperwork, affidavit. and No, you did those three years ago. Again, that didn't make you a Floridian. You said on your return that you filed under penalty of perjury that in 2021, you changed your domicile. So don't tell me what you did in 2020, 2019, et cetera. Tell me what you did in the year that you asserted that you changed. And the concern, of course, Frazier, is that there better be something to talk about, because if all you've done is I used to spend five and a half months in Florida, now I spend six and a half months in Florida, if that's the change, is that really a clear and convincing case? It, it gets to be difficult. So the answer to your question is you sit down, you make a plan, you identify the things you can do, the things that you won't do. In other words, going back to our original discussion, if you're willing to sell your home up north or downsize, wow, you've just enhanced your case tremendously because that's a change, right? You used to have a five-bedroom, 5,000-square-foot home in Manhasset, and now you've got a little condo in Queens. That says a lot. You've downsized, and that's what people do when they move. I was going to say, or even better, you sell, stay out of New York for a year and then either rent or buy back later on. Does that work, or do they see through that? They will see through that because, look, let's assume tomorrow. Now, today is 6th of October. So let us assume tomorrow you decided you wanted to become a Floridian. Actually, there's one problem already. New York has a rule that supersedes everything else that says if during any calendar year you've got a home here and you're physically in our state more than 183 days, game over, you lose. You are incapable of changing your tax residence. So let's assume that isn't October or whatever. So you go down to Florida and you do all the things that you think you should be doing. New York isn't going to see the return that you re reflect the change of residence until as late as October of 2022. This year's return isn't due until April of next year, or some people file as late as October. Now you filed it in maybe June of 2022. New York now has three years to do an audit. They're not going to do an audit on day one. They'll, they'll wait a year or two. So now you'll get audited and it is 2023, 2024. And quite frankly, if you tell an auditor, I left New York indefinitely forever, I became a Floridian, and then a year later you acquired a place, that's completely inconsistent with what you said you were doing. Why would you reacquire a place? So I guess the answer to your question directly is, if you're going to sell, 
you absolutely don't want to reacquire before the audit begins because it will send all the wrong signals. Uh, I'd heard elsewhere that having a good year being outside New York is a useful data point. But if you come right back in, the auditors are on top of that. And that makes sense. The auditors have phenomenal 2020 hindsight in New York. They will say, look, I see what you did in year two. Clearly, it doesn't reflect your intention. And I guess, you know, Frazier, that's the most frustrating part of any of these audits. Right? New York is trying to identify your mental state, your subjective intention. When did you leave for, let's say, Florida and established it as your home? When did you feel it in your heart? And obviously we can't read your mind. So what we try to do is look at objective factors, things that you did that reflect your intention. That's the only way we can divine it. There's only about four or five things that New York really cares about. What we don't care about are those pieces of paper, where your burial plot is. You know, People have all sorts of stories, but they're not really relevant. What we look at primarily is number one, what's your housing situation all about? Have you downsized up north? Have you upsized down south? If you want a terrible case, you keep that 5,000 square foot place in Manhasset and you start renting a condo in Boca. You own big and beautiful up here and you rent down there. Not the same commitment. And if you really want to lose your case quickly, do an Airbnb. That's not a commitment to a, an area at all. That's by definition temporary. So we want to see you really focus on the home. We call it the home factor. Related to kids and spouses and indicia that could torpedo your audit from schooling to maybe having two different residences and trying to arbitrage one, the wife maybe staying in New York versus the husband moving to Florida. Does any of that work or are those things that the auditors are looking at too? And does a bad fact pattern at the whole family level kill the residency gamesmanship you're trying to play at the individual level? Yeah, it can. I mean, look, one of the questions that an auditor will always ask if you have younger children is where are they enrolled in school? And this is the problem I have with a lot of my clients who've moved to the Hamptons. Their kids are still enrolled in New York City schools, albeit they're learning remotely. But who has their kids go to school where they don't live? You generally don't put your kids in school in a place where you're taking a vacation. It is completely inconsistent with where your home is. The other thing is, you know, we talk about the five things that really matter. I just mentioned the home factor. We talked about where you sleep at night. Another factor is where your business is located, where you moved your stuff. We talked about the moving dam. But the fifth factor that we look at is your home, is your kids, is your wife, your husband. Where is your spouse? We assume most spouses share a life and live together. Now, obviously, if you're estranged, you're getting divorced, whatever, sure, life changes. But if you're a married couple living a regular, happily married life. Some people would say that's oxymoronic. I'm moving on from there. <laughs> living your, your life, we assume spouses live together. And if you've got one spouse that's up north and one spouse down south, that's going to be, I get it with the day count, but it's going to be real hard to prove it. And I think the real question an auditor will raise in that situation, Frazier, is, well, what happens on the weekends? Is dad down in Florida? And does he never want to see his wife and kids again? Well, no, he comes back. He comes back on weekends. The definition of a commuter. A commuter goes to where they need to be to work. Wife and kids, in this example, stay home. And when dad is done working, he returns. You will lose that case very quickly. Talking about New York City versus New York State. So New York City, lots of people live in Westchester County, Long Island, New Jersey, Fairfield County, Connecticut. Lots of craziness related to people not working in their offices in Manhattan anymore. They're working from home. And as you said, there's confusion or expectation that 
well, I'm not working in Manhattan anymore. How do I deal with state and city taxes? And that's probably confused if you have pied-a-terre in Manhattan. How do you advise clients on that front? Are people moving their offices out for purposes of avoiding New York City taxation? Or how does that work exactly? Yeah, well, the good news is the city doesn't tax people who work there. It only taxes people who live there, who are residents there. So either New York City is your home, your we call it domicile, where your heart is, or you violate the 183-day rule. But just because you work in New York City, I mean, there's people from Connecticut, New Jersey, Nassau County who come into New York City every day, used to, <laughs> they work, and they go home. They pay New York State tax on everything, but they don't pay New York City. So that's issue one. Issue two is the concern we have with people working at home. New York State, again, because New York City doesn't tax people who work there. New York State has a rule that says if you are working from another location at home because it's convenient, so you're not working in New York, you're working out of your home in Connecticut, or you go to your ski chalet in Colorado. If you are a W-2 employee and your primary work location was New York, then New York State will tax your wages anyway. It's called the convenience rule. It's gone to our court system a couple of times and the courts have continually affirmed its validity. And basically it says, if you had to be in Colorado to meet with clients or meet with bankers or check out, you know, you're you're doing pictures of the mountains and you want to take pictures of the mountains, obviously then you had to be in Colorado to do that. You're not there for convenience, you're there out of necessity. That's okay, you don't pay tax on that to New York. But when you're working at home, because it's convenient, New York State will tax you. The real problem is that if you do work, and I'll continue to harp on Colorado, Colorado has a rule that New York also has that says, well, if you're working in Colorado, we tax you. I mean, New York is kind of infamous for an old case involving a guy named Nat Moore. Nat Moore was a wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins who used to come to Buffalo, New York to play the Buffalo Bills, which, by the way, the only New York State professional football team, just for the record. They played the Bills one day a year. And New York taxed him on one sixteenth of his income. There were 16 games, one of which was played in Buffalo in New York, and New York State taxed him. Well, bad news for my Colorado commuter. Colorado says if you're working in Colorado, we get to tax you. Yeah, but what about the fact that New York is taxing me? That's interesting, but we're Colorado. We have our own set of rules. And in a situation like that, you could have somebody working and having to pay taxes in two different jurisdictions, New York, because you're working at home for your convenience, in Colorado, because you're working there. That's one issue. And I'll tell you, one of the other things that the pandemic has brought about is this situation. Many states have that 183-day rule that we discussed earlier, Connecticut, for example. So let us assume that I was a New York City resident, and I am getting out of Dodge because New York City has been on fire with respect to the pandemic. I've been working for the last couple of years out of my vacation home in Connecticut. Well, the good news is for 2020, Connecticut said, don't worry about it. But for 2021, New York State and New York City will still want to tax me because it's still my home. It's still my domicile. I haven't changed my domicile because I am coming back. And I don't plan to be in Connecticut forever. I'm just waiting for the pandemic to ebb or if it ever does. But Connecticut would also say, well, wait a second. You've got a place in Connecticut and you're here more than 183 days. Doesn't that make you a Connecticut statutory resident? Yeah, I guess so. I'm there too much. And although you'll probably be made whole with respect to earned income, you could be in a situation, especially if you make interest or dividends or capital gains or carried interest, which is something hedge fund people make a lot of. Connecticut says we get to tax all of it because you're a Connecticut statutory resident. You're here too much. New York State says we get to tax it because 
you're a domiciliary of New York. You haven't changed your domicile because you are coming back. And we'll know for sure in 2022 when you are back. And we use our 2020 hindsight to know that Connecticut was temporary. And New York City gets to tax it as well because you're a New York City domiciliary. And now you try to get a credit and the states say no. We don't give a credit for this unearned income. We only give a credit for what they call sourced income. So you're really in a pickle because now you've got double and triple, if you think of the city, tax on the same unearned income. And did I read a court case that essentially affirmed that, that both states and I guess the city too have a legitimate claim on that and they don't necessarily have to net it out? Correct. Yeah, there's a case. One of them is Barker, where actually Barker was interesting and it worked the other way around. We had a, a Connecticut couple who lived in Connecticut, kids in Connecticut, clearly domiciled in Connecticut, and husband came into New York City every day to work at his hedge fund. He's a commuter. Again, came into the city during the day, went home every night. That's what commuters do. No question he's domiciled in Connecticut. But it turns out this guy had a place out in the Hamptons that he used a couple of weeks a year. And New York's rule is, do you have living quarters in New York for the entire year? Whether you use them or not, we don't care. Did you have them available? Yeah. Were you in New York State more than 183 days? Yeah, I commuted to New York City. So New York hit him with tax on his carried interest of multiple millions of dollars. And Connecticut, of course, did too. And when he went for a credit, both states said, tough. And he wound up paying double tax on the same income. And now his state tax rate exceeded the federal tax rate when you added the two states together. It's just outrageous. As we start to wind down here, we've thrown a lot of different concepts at people. But for those people who are in New York who are either sort of crossing borders from a commuting standpoint or thinking about relocating oftentimes for tax reasons, what are the couple of takeaways from establishing a process to get out exactly the way you want to? Yeah, I guess number one is you want to sit down with somebody who has done this a couple of times before, because again, I can't tell you how often people don't understand that 183-day rule trumps everything else. I've seen people this time of year who will say, look, I want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm moving lock, stock, and barrel to Florida, the wife, the kids, the whole bit. Keep my place up north because again, it gets super hot in the summer. They wait a month or two. They don't even sell the Bitcoin until November and they find out, nope, you didn't do anything because, again, that 183-day rule trumps everything else and you hit the 100. So you want to talk to somebody who knows something about this area. But the other thing is when you move, you want to make sure you move. And, again, going back to my original comment, and I guess if you take nothing away from this at all, it's that it's really important when you move to any location that you move stuff. You don't want to be in a situation where you don't move things because auditors expect to see you move stuff. In fact, one of the four things that we focus on, as I mentioned, is the near and dear test. Where are your nearest and dearest possessions? We assume they would be with you at home. And so you got to move stuff. And that's really critical. Uh, absent that. And I guess the last thing I'd mention is make sure when you change your residence, you pick a date that makes sense. I can't tell you, Frazier, how many people will say, all right, I'm going to become a Floridian. I'm moving down there. Effective January 1st of 2022, I am a Floridian. Great. So then you get the audit questionnaire. Question one, how did you find the movers on New Year's Day? That's kind of awesome. And the response is, well, no, I can afford two TVs. I didn't really need to move anything, yada, yada. Okay, says the auditor. Where were you New Year's Eve? Oh, my beautiful new home in Boynton Beach, Florida. Okay, where were you New Year's Day? My beautiful new home in Boynton Beach, Florida. So let me get this straight, says the auditor. Somehow between when you put your head on the pillow at night on New Year's Eve and you woke up in the morning, you moved to Florida? It doesn't make sense. 
The day you move to Florida is the day where the day before you're in New York, you're living here, and then you get on a plane or in your car or however, and the next day you start living in Florida for a nice long period of time, months and months and months. You don't want to say I've landed in Florida forever and a week later head to Europe for a month. That's not a great sticking of the landing. So you want to make sure, A, you move stuff and you pick a date that makes sense. Terrific. This is really helpful. There's so many misconceptions out there. And as you say, people who are getting their legal advice on the golf course or at the bowling alley or wherever they're getting it. Mark, how do we stay in touch with you? How do people find you if they want to find out more? We've got a website at the firm HodgsonRuss.com that has all sorts of information that we put out there on residency. We have little booklets. We always tell people that a residency audit by the state of New York is sort of the tax version of a colonoscopy. It's very intrusive. It's not a lot of fun. But just like when you go for one of your colonoscopies, you get a little booklet from the doctor. Here's what you expect. We actually have a booklet called Here's What You Expect in Your Residency Audit. And sometimes it makes sense to review that and take a look at what auditors are going to ask you before you ever get the questions. That's something that's available on our website. We also have checklists for changing domicile. Again, those are nice. And should you do all those paperwork things? Sure. I got to tell you, I've been doing this just about 40 years. And I know your obvious question is, how did you start when you were eight? But we'll get beyond that. In the last 40 years, I don't think I've ever had a client win or lose a case because of their driver's license. They don't really care a lot about those. Should you do them? Sure. And there's a lot of great checklists going around, but please don't put a tremendous amount of weight in them. What we really look at is how you live your life. Where are you sleeping at night? Where is your dentist? Did you move your stuff? Where do the kids go to school? Those are the things that reflect your home, your domicile, a lot more than your automobile registration. Excellent. Mark, thank you very much for being on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.